Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with experts to help navigate wellness and empower all of us to make feasible changes to a healthier life and healthier world. In today's conversation, we talk to Dr. Jolene Brighton, who is a prominent leader in women's medicine and the emerging science of post-birth control syndrome, studying the effects of hormonal birth control on female health a fierce patient advocate and completely dedicated to uncovering the root cause of hormonal imbalances. Dr. Brighton empowers women worldwide to take control of their health and their hormones. She's an international speaker, clinical educator, medical advisor within the tech community, and considered a leading authority on women's health. Dr. Brighton is also part of the Mind Body Green Collective and a faculty member for the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. Her work has been featured in the New York Post, Forbes, Cosmopolitan, Huffington Post, Bustle, The Guardian, and ABC News. Her book, Beyond the Pill, is informative and enlightening, and I can't recommend it enough. Dr. Brighton is a wonderful doctor and all-around amazing human being. In today's conversation, Dr. Brighton shares her wisdom about all things birth control and aspects of it that are rarely talked about but super important to know why birth control is important, but why it is vital that we have all the information on birth control, why it's important to believe all women when they talk about their symptoms. We touch on synthetic progestin found in birth control versus natural progesterone made in the body. Dr. Brighton talks about the side effects of birth control that we rarely hear about, but what we can also do to protect us from these side effects, what we can do to increase our energy, And Dr. Brighton also answers the all-popular question, does birth control cause weight gain? Throughout the conversation, we talk about why informed consent is vital. We loved this conversation with Dr. Brighton and hearing her wisdom, and we hope you enjoy it as well. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, Dr. Brighton. Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast. We've been really looking forward to having a conversation with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. For everybody who's listening, we've already talked for an hour before we started recording. So, uh, like, yeah, we we have lots to talk about now. You're full of great information, so it's hard not to talk to you. (laughs) Um, So you're an expert in women's health, and your book, Beyond the Pill, specifically focuses on oral contraceptive pills. Uh, We really wanted to start with, why is this topic important to you? Oh, so one, I'm a woman. So there's that. And I used birth control for a decade. So I think, you know, the first thing to understand is that I'm not anti-birth control. Uh, I think it's really easy when anyone starts to question or even criticize some aspects of birth control that we, you know, we get thrown into the camp of like, well, that's just anti-birth control. Let's just shut them down. I will always advocate for you to have access to birth control along with having access to an informed consent, something that I didn't get while I was on birth control. Um, and yet like, I don't hate birth control. Some people are like, you you must hate it after all, you know, and I'm like, well, I'm a first generation college student and I come from a giant Hispanic family. And I'm like the only one who like, I'm the only one who didn't get pregnant before, you know, or my twenties. Um, and I was able to delay pregnancy, get pregnant when I wanted to be able to go to medical school. And I, you know, in addition to that, 
got to enjoy pain-free periods um, for a period of time of my life, which is really how I got started on birth control was for painful, heavy periods. And the bonus was I wouldn't get pregnant too. And, you know, for me, it's, you know, this is really close to home. And yet having a women's health practice, I've seen the same thing over and over and a, a pattern in which women are prescribed birth control without having any idea why they have these symptoms in the first place, yet that's the primary reason they get the prescription. So for acne, irregular periods, painful periods, um, you know, things like, basically if it's a, like a lady part problem or it's related to sex hormones, then we just put you on the pill. And if you wanna have a baby, then we'll, we'll talk about it then. But it's really, and it's, I think a really unjust triage where it's like, do you want to have a baby? No, here's birth control. Oh, you, you do want to have a baby? Okay, we're going to actually dig deeper and figure out what's going on. And whether or not you want to procreate in your life really shouldn't have an influence on that aspect of healthcare. So, you know, for me, I would like to see women getting all the information they need to make the best decision for themselves. I would like to see that women are understanding and getting worked up why they have their symptoms before they start birth control and then have the choice to go on birth control instead of being told the only way to manage your horrible periods is to be on birth control. Maybe, I mean, if we're talking about endometriosis, that may be like the most crucial tool that you have, but you also need to know that you have endometriosis. Like that is your right to know what's happening in your body. Um, and then there's the issue with when we come off that not all of us come off and it's, just, you know, what are we told? What are you guys told about like the pill when you come off? Can you get pregnant like immediately? Yeah, that's usually what we hear or it's completely disregarded. Yeah. Like there's no um, attention given to it. And that's really left a huge gap but, uh, where women have just fallen into this, you know, this big hole in, in medicine where it's like, something's wrong with me as I come off of birth control and their doctor says, well, that's who you were. This is just your normal. This is like, you know, your body before birth control, this is what you're getting. And yet they say, but it was nothing like that. Like for me, I had clockwork periods. Um, I make jokes, you know, I come from a very fertile family and we make jokes about the fact that like, you just look at a woman in my family and we're pregnant. Like mm -hmm. that's how easy it is. Um, and yet when I came off of birth control, I completely lost my period. And that was frightening to me. And at the time I was like, I don't even want to have a baby. I, mean, I just want to come off of birth control because I learned in, you know, when I was in pharmacology, like the, you know, the, the fertile window for a woman, you know, really she only has like 24 hours that that egg is viable. And it's like this, you know, five, six day window out of the month to get pregnant. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm taking birth control this entire time. I'm not even sexually active and I can't like get pregnant. Like the whole, and this was like a big, this is like 10 years on the pill. And I'm like, I didn't even understand how my fertility worked. Um, but when I came off, like when you're faced with the fact that you might not be able to have a child, things really start to change for you. Um, and that was the thing is that I didn't have a period. So I wasn't ovulating and I broke out in cystic acne. And what my doctor said to me is that I probably had PCOS and I misremembered my periods and that like, I always had acne before. And I'm like, when you have a beard of acne, like you make no mistake, like, you know, if this is new or not. And, um, a lot of women, you know, have that same story. And that's the thing that I uh, came to realize only through my clinical practice that I wasn't a freak anomaly or, you know, you know, falling into the psychological gaslighting that my doctor did to me of like, 
oh, I just don't know my body. It's like, no, there are women who struggle. Um, and the majority have a hiccup when they come off. It's not just like, oh, you come off and you instantly are like back to ovulating regularly, or you don't have like a zitter two, or you don't have a mood swing. Like the, your brain and ovaries have not been communicating for as long as that you've been on the pill, the patch, the ring, um, the IUDs sometimes will disrupt uh, ovulation, not always. Um, those are the progestin-based IUDs. But to understand that like for as long as you're on it, that system's not operating. So when you come off, there might be a little bit of a hiccup. There might be a major hiccup, but that doesn't mean that like you're broken, that you've damaged your body beyond repair, or that something is wrong with you that like has never happened to anyone else, which I think is really what drove the passion behind all this is just how many women were telling stories of their doctors not listening, dismissing them, telling them, well, there's no research study to prove what you're saying. Therefore, what you're saying can't be true. To that, I'm like, well, how do we get, how do we know what questions to ask in research if we don't like listen to our patients? I really like all of that, what you said, and there's so many things that we can unpack. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about side effects later and then post birth control syndrome. But similar to your story, I was put on birth control pills um, to regulate my cycle. And I, they never looked at the underlying reason for why my cycles were irregular. And when I had questions about fertility in the future, because I was 17, 16 or 17 at that time, it was a little bit hand wavy, like, oh, it's fine. Um, and so I think it's birth control obviously is very, very important because like you said, it allowed you to go to medical school and put off um, being pregnant and every woman should have accessibility to OCPs or to any kind of birth control. But the informed consent is so crucial in order to make an individualized um, decision on what you do with your body. And I think uh, we would love to also talk about some background information on the two hormones that we um, have that are highlighted in um, women's bodies specifically that are wonderful and have protective effects. Um, could you describe what estrogen and progesterone are and why they're important in women's health? Mm, so these are what get called the women's sex hormones, but guess what? We all have them. <laughs> I just, um, I always laugh that we've really uh, assigned a gender to like every hormone and I, because it really makes it confusing because we all have these, we have different ratios. Um, and yet it's like when women have, like when they're testing their testosterone, they're like, oh my God, I have testosterone. That's bad. That's a man's hormone. Well, no, actually, it's a really important hormone for you too, in terms of like regulating your immune system and your mood and your bone and your brain health. Um, so estrogen and progesterone, these are the main drivers of the menstrual cycle. So they are sex hormones. And with these two hormones, they're really important for overall health. I mean, so yes, testosterone is the brain, the bones, but so is estrogen and progesterone. Um, we know, you know, with progesterone, we actually need it for forming the myelin sheath of the brain. It helps with neuroplasticity. So um, evidence that it's really important for the longevity of your brain health, which is really important given that the, you know, majority of dementia patients are women. So we can't be negating like the importance of these hormones and being exposed to them in the proper amounts throughout our lifetime. Um, estrogen is also why we have our curves. So 
And if you are struggling with excess amounts of estrogen, you might have excess uh, curves in terms of your butt, hips, and thighs. And you might be like, I hate estrogen. Don't hate it. Um, but it's why, you know, our lips plump up, especially like pre-ovulation. We have our breasts are full, our hips are full. So estrogen, um, you know, often gets uh, talked about in terms of the feminization. So it gives us the feminine features, but it also is like, um, involved in like the integrity of our skin. So when we don't have enough estrogen, we get fine lines, wrinkles that show up more. Um, your skin can become more thin. Your breasts can start to droop. So it's involved in a lot of things outside of baby making. And this is what's really important to understand because, you know, I remember when I was on the pill, like we could just like add this up to like, we could just keep a list of like stupid things I did in my twenties. Um, and this was one of being like, you know, telling my body, you'll bleed when I say you want to bleed. And like, I don't need these hormones. I, I have my own synthetic hormones. I didn't know, even know they were synthetic at the time, but I was like, I'll just replace them. Like, you know, better living through chemistry, so to speak, like throwback to like, what was that? The sixties um, of using that and not really understanding like how important these hormones actually were. Um, and I didn't really understand, uh, until well after being on birth control that there is no progesterone in birth control because my doctor had used it so interchangeably saying like, oh, well the progesterone. And yet, as it turns out, it's progestin. You'll also see this in the research, which is like really confusing because they'll say like, oh, progesterone so problematic and it does all these bad things. And then you get into like the, you know, the actual methodology and like things that were using it's progestin. Okay. That's different. Like we're talking about a synthetic form of progesterone. And uh, for people who are like, is it really that different? Just do a Google search of progesterone and do an image and progestin and an image. And then you can just look at those chemicals. Like I have a degree in chemistry, yet you do not have to have a degree in chemistry just to look at like, okay, they're chemically different structures and they do operate differently within the body. That's really interesting. So that's the difference between what you were saying, synthetic, and then what you naturally produce. So do these synthetic compounds, do we know what kind of side effects they have? You know, we know a lot, but there's a whole lot we don't know. So um, it's a tricky thing because I think, um, you know, often we hear that like, oh, birth control has been around for so long. We know so much about it. We've used it, you know, for generations now. And yet when you really look at the research, there's a whole lot of gaps. Like there's a whole lot that like we don't, we can't really explain or we're just not even trying to explain and looking into um, there's, you know, always been concerns about cardiovascular issues. So like blood clots, um, whether it shows up in the legs, the lungs, the brain. Um, and those are like, you know, with the newer generations, those are lower risk than they used to be, unless you have like a genetic mutation or something else that predisposes you. And I say that because, um, in the comments, anytime they talk about that and I talk about like, you know, the, the risk is relatively low. There's always somebody who comes in and says, I had a clot. And yes, that happens. It's why I'm we need to counsel women about this, tell them what to look out for, which is what I did in my book. Some people said, you know, you're just scaring women by telling them like what a heart attack look like and looks like and what a stroke looks like. And I'm like, no, but see like women present differently and we, we need to have that information so that we know when to go to our doctor. And we know when the ER room is sending us home saying, it's probably just a headache. Go home. Like you're like, no, mm -mm, something's up. I need, I need to have support. Um, but also counseling the lifestyle aspects of like smoking is really bad. Yes, we know that. Like it's, you know, at this point, 
I mean, with my patients, I, I will straight up say that. Like, if they're smokers, I'm like, you don't need a lecture from me on smoking's bad. Like, we know this. It's been well established. Yet, what you do need to understand is how it's affecting you as an individual. And what we need to understand is, like, why is that the habit of choice for you? So we've got the, you know, the cardiovascular issues. Those are, like, the big scary ones. We know there's a mild increased risk with breast cancer. Um, you'll often hear when women question the cancer uh, risk of birth control, they're usually met with like, oh, but it lowers your risk of ovarian cancer and endometrial cancer. Yes, and we need to tell the full story here. Um, and that there is an association. It's a mild increased risk. However, in that individual, if they already have gene mutations, if they already have familial um, you know, risk factors, environmental risk factors, like where are they living? Uh, we have to have that kind of discussion as well. So those are usually where people go um, in their mind, but the lesser talked about things are things like nutrient depletions that can come up with birth control. So um, this is something that I want people to understand. It's a, if you're eating a standard American diet, then yeah, this is probably going to impact you. If you are eating like six to nine servings of vegetables a day on average, um, you know, this is something that you can get a leg up on, but you probably are going to need a prenatal or multivitamin, which spoiler is that if you're on the pill, um, you know, roughly about nine out of a hundred women will become pregnant in the year of using the pill with typical use and birth control pills are depleting B12 and folate, which are absolutely crucial for fetal development and are needed before you ever have a positive pregnancy test. So it's just a good idea to be on one of those. You know, it's also uh, depleting things like selenium, which is needed for thyroid function. And poor thyroid function is associated with increased risk of miscarriage and um, poor outcomes for babies. So we want to be looking at those, those aspects. And it doesn't mean that like, oh, don't ever start the pill because you'll have nutrient deficiencies. But it's like, you should know that this drug, like many drugs that are out there, can rob you of nutrients. It's something that like, you know, with metformin, we know that there's a possibility that you could develop a B12 uh, deficiency. So what can we do to negate that? Well, we could just give you some B12, like while you're on that drug, and then we don't have to worry about like doing repeat blood work and testing or waiting until you have like neurological symptoms coming up. So, you know, those are the, you know, those are a few. And the one, the other one I would, you know, touch on, and there's certainly like a whole lot more we could talk forever about, um, is also the mood symptoms that we see come up on birth control. And that is something that, you know, as we talk about, you know, what do we know? What do we not know? It wasn't until 2016 that we actually had a um, robust study. Now, mind you, we're still not in a place where we can say causation. I don't know that we'll ever say birth control causes mood issues because it's so complex. Like what's happening with these hormones, the body, your environment, life, living through a pandemic, like it's just so complex. Um, and yet, you know, we had this study in JAMA of over a million women showing that yes, there is a correlation here, which I think was so amazing to see how many women finally felt valid, validated by that, um, knowing that they weren't crazy, that they weren't, it wasn't in their head, that what their doctor was telling them like was, you know, wrong with them was actually like, maybe this, this pharmaceutical just wasn't quite working for you. But even as we saw that study come out, we did see doctors lining up to tell women that like, no, 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 it's a correlation. It's still you. And like, can you just like, give them a win for like five minutes so that they can be like, oh my gosh, like, because we hear this, I'm sure you guys have heard this as well. 
of women going on um, the pill, but this can also happen with the other forms of contraceptives as well, even the progestin only, and not feeling like themselves or crying all the time, um, you know, feeling more lethargic, losing joy in life. Like these things happen. And um, what's interesting is that I've got uh, several friends who are pharmacists and they'll say like, when we fill that birth control prescription, it's generally a matter of time until the next prescription comes. This isn't universally, this isn't for every woman, but they're like, that's, you know, typically when we'll see like the Xanax, the SSRI, the, um, even the thyroid medication, like coming like a year, you know, or more later. And so it's really, um, interesting to look at the observations that other clinicians are making when we prescribe birth control. And yet we still don't know who, and why this, there's some, there's been some studies as to why there's these mood issues. There's some studies, you know, um, that have come up with some, you know, pretty interesting hypotheses. Um, and yet in terms of like, how can we prevent that? We don't really have the answers and we can talk all about why we have so many problems in research with, um, with birth control in particular. Oh, I'm sure we can go down a big rabbit hole with that. Um, but I wanted to ask you, is there anything that you recommend women to do to just increase their energy in general or to banish the brain fog and kind of take control of their mood? Um, number one is you need to sleep. Um, we were actually talking about that ahead of time. And I was, uh, for everybody who wasn't privy to our conversation before, I was talking um, to my son about why he has to go to bed at uh, you know seven o'clock at night and just like how important sleep is and so yes if you want to you know get rid of brain fog and you want to have more energy sleep seems like really obvious and but here's the thing without adequate progesterone you may not get the stimulation of the GABA receptors that you need in your brain to stay asleep through the night um so you may have that anxiousness that restlessness um taking place so if i say sleep is really important and you're like yeah good luck with that um <laughs> then there might be something more going on um the other thing is that if you're having brain fog and fatigue you know one of the first areas we look at is thyroid hormones so we got to understand what is happening with your thyroid um, it's well documented that while on birth control, binding proteins increase specifically sex hormone binding globulin, thyroid binding globulin, and cortisol binding globulin. And this is actually when they're doing a study, how they validate that you're really taking the birth control uh, pill that they're prescribing you and that you're not faking it because <laughs> they had problems with that in the past because they made women feel so bad that they would just quit and not take them and lie. And I'm like, I don't know uh, that I totally blame a patient for the, in a drug trial for being like, I don't want to feel like this is horrible. Um, and so with them, it may be that, you know, you have issues with inflammation going on. It may be that you, you know, you've got thyroid uh, dysfunction issues, or it may be that thyroid binding lobulin is elevated. And what that will do is grab onto your free hormones. Now, often what we'll see is women only get a TSH tested. That's what their brain says to their thyroid. It's a pituitary hormone. It's not a thyroid hormone. So it's an indirect measurement of thyroid function. But we can look at a free T4 and a free T3, and it specifically has to be those free hormones because the other ones will be gobbled up by the thyroid binding globulin because that's just transporting it around. But the free hormones are what you're using. And you know, what we'll find is that there can also be issues with actually converting uh, T4 to T3. You know, there's crucial nutrients that you need to make. So selenium is really important in all of this that can be depleted by um, the birth control pill specifically. 
but also utilizing uh, T3 at the receptor. So vitamin A is one that can be affected by the pill and it's necessary for utilizing, utilizing thyroid hormone. And so there can actually be dysfunction, not in your thyroid, like your thyroid can be like, I'm trying, okay, I'm like really trying here. And yet there can be downstream hormonal issues. So you definitely wanna do a full thyroid panel and check your thyroid. Um, and then start looking at like, well, what, what is your inflammation like? Because if we're, you know, fatigued and we've got brain fog, we know that inflammation can, it can disrupt neurotransmitters. Um, it, anyone who, you know, has ever had like a cold or a flu and you're like, my brain's not working right. We've got these inflammatory, you know, cytokines circulating throughout the body. Um, so looking at those aspects, because for some women, birth control can be inflammatory. So they've done um, studies where they find that birth control raises your CRP, your C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation. It is less of it. So here's why we don't hear a lot about this. This is less of a concern for the typical person who's being prescribed birth control. So, right, you get on it when you're 17. That's when I started it too. Or maybe you're in your 20s. And you're young and you're healthy, you know, relatively speaking. But the problem is, is that we actually have no studies to understand well, what happens when we put her on it at 17 and then she comes off of it at 47. We don't actually know. We need to be honest about that in medicine because doctors, you know, when I started the pill, it was okay. After 10 years, you have to be off of this. The risks are too high. We can't leave you on it. We don't know. Once 10 years rolled around and my doctor's like, eh, you could probably stay on it. I'm like, and I asked, like, what changed? Well, the recommendations and guidelines changed. What changed with the research? Well, not a lot changed there. We're just finding that, like, women are staying on it longer, and it seems okay. I'm like, that's making me nervous. Like, that's like, well, wait a minute. So we don't actually know. And well, what I will say we do know is that when at, uh, you know, as we get, you know, into our 40s, we're still on birth control, that inflammation can be more prob problematic for our um, cardiovascular system. And, you know, there was a study, it does need to be repeated, showing that women um, who were on birth control, who then transitioned into menopause and came off, they were at higher risk for diabetes. So there's also an effect happening with our metabolic system in terms of insulin dysregulation. It's not universal for all women, but when we consider that like, this is the drug of choice for treating PCOS symptoms, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which a lot of women can have insulin dysregulation and inflammation taking place. And then you're potentially putting them on a pharmaceutical that could make that worse. And then not monitoring them saying, well, great, you get a monthly withdrawal bleed. And so we'll just call it good. Um, that can be really problematic as well. Yeah. Well, this is a much more nuanced conversation than I had with um, my physician when he was prescribing me OCPs for the first time. And I think this information is vital to be getting out to all of these women because it's so, like you said, universally prescribed for all kinds of symptoms, not just birth control, but for acne, for regulating your menstrual cycle. So I really appreciate what you're doing and getting all the information out there for women. And then it also goes back to what you're saying with a lot of these studies need to be repeated uh, just in women's health alone. There, there isn't enough studies being done on women's health and in Alzheimer's. And like you were saying, uh, the symptoms that women experience in a heart attack is different than men. So we really need to be researching more on women's health and continue to disseminate the information. I want to go back to what you were saying about nutrient depletion. And it seems mm -hmm. like um, there's a lot of nutrients that can be depleted when taking OCPs. 
when a woman comes to you who are who's on the birth control pill or on contraceptives, um, what kind of nutrients do you prescribe or uh, what kind of diet do you think is best? Yeah, well, it's important for people to understand that the research we do have on contraceptives is specific to the pill with these nutrient um, depletions that can happen. Um, in terms of what diet I think is best, the one where you eat vegetables, protein, and fats, um, that's, that's like really, uh, you know, best. And then bringing in your carbohydrates as well and whatever that looks like for you. Uh, it's a funny thing, like um, nutrition dogma is real. <laughs> it's really real. Um, and I laugh about like the fact, um, I laugh about it now. It was a bit of a struggle though for, well, it was a struggle, um, is I actually struggled with like orthorexia because of the food pyramid when I was getting my nutrition degree. And even though I felt awful eating six servings of grains a day, I felt awful. Um, and the days I wouldn't get those six servings in, I didn't feel as bad. And I was like, totally not listening to my body and being like, no, but I have to, because this is healthy. And then I really found out how we come up with these food recommendations. And I was like, oh, <laughs> silly me. Um, <clears throat> but really, you know, the best diet for you is the best diet that works for you. And it's not going to be static throughout a lifetime. Um, and, you know, I'll talk about this on my social media where, you know, there's some basic tenants to this. Like we all need adequate protein. Absolutely. Um, you know, for some people, they're going to do great on plant-based protein for other people. They have to be eating meat, like, and that's just the way that they feel best. Um, and then what comes in is, uh, dogmatic thinking where people will say, no, vegan, vegan healed me and vegan is the best way to go. They're right. It's the thing that helped them. That's true for them but it may not be true for this other person. Then we've got the other side of the spectrum, which is like the carnivore diet now. Um, I'll just say that like, I'm willing to be wrong, but that just seems a little bit too far to go in my opinion. I'm like, I'm pro vegetable. So, but I'm like, maybe, maybe we'll find something out in the future and I'll be wrong. Um, it, but I'm like, right now we have an opportunity to study people who are putting their hands up and, and diving into that. But, you know, they'll say like, this is the only way to reverse autoimmunity. Like you have to just cut everything out and only eat meat. Um, and maybe that's working for them. I mean, I've seen people putting up their blood markers and, and it, it looks good on paper, but um, in reality, when it comes to, you know, how, what's the best diet, it's the one that's working for you and the most nutrient dense. Um, and so, you know, anything that is like highly refined is going to have less nutrients in it. Um, does that mean, like, we just like rolled out of the holidays. Does that mean you're bad if you were like eating cookies? No, you're not bad if you're eating cookies. Um, it doesn't like, you know, I don't subscribe to this idea of like bad foods that people like, cause then you think it, oh, this food's bad now I'm bad cause I'm eating it. Um, but understanding that each time you step up to the plate with your food, that you have an opportunity to build nutrient density or you have caloric density. Like these are, these are the choices. And it doesn't mean that like, if one day you just decide like, I'm going to eat cake uh, for breakfast that like, oh, that's like a total fail. But we do want to be focusing as often as possible to filling our plate with like half a plate full of vegetables and that can you know of course we love like our leafy greens um you know the cruciferous vegetables are so great for supporting estrogen metabolism in the body they're like always winning in the research um always winning especially when it comes to like preventing the negative effects of estrogen that's fantastic as well um and then looking at, you know, your protein sources, if you are vegan or you are vegetarian, you need to be getting a variety of protein sources and making sure you're getting complete amino acids. 
you need these, uh, your liver requires these nutrients to run its detox pathways. Um, this is something that in my book, I'm going to, if you, if anyone's ever listened to me before, they've like heard this again. So I'm sorry, but, um, my, like the chapter that's called birth control detox 101, it was called liver detox 101. And it was just about explaining how your liver detoxifies your hormones. Um, yeah, my publishers and they weren't wrong about this. were like, nobody wants to read a chapter about liver. Like that is so boring. Name it something else. And I'm like, this is birth control detox 101. This is how your body is detoxing these hormones. Because I knew that people thought my body never detoxes these hormones. Your body naturally does this. It, it has a great system in place. Um, you know, will it do it on its own? Sure. To a point, but you do have to support it. Like we can't expect our kidneys to be detoxifying if we just stop drinking water. Like it's not going to work that way. So there are things that you need to do to support that. My regret in that is that then what I saw next was that people did run with it even further and were like, you have to detox these hormones out of your body or they will never come out. Um, and then we saw, uh, companies coming out with like, this is like the birth control detox. Everyone has to do that. Or these synthetic hormones are in your body forever. And I'm like, I don't know how that's possible. Um, your body's like really efficient at getting rid of stuff it doesn't need anymore. Um, but you know, that's just to say that like your liver also needs amino acids. And this is often overlooked. Like your, your liver needs proteins to do a lot of what it does. Your whole body needs proteins. Um, so just making sure, you know, there's people um, in the paleo camp who are like, you know, you have to eat like only these certain proteins. We got the vegan camp. We got it. Like the most important thing is let's get complete amino acids. Don't forget about your branch chain amino acids as we go back to talking about energy um, post-workout, getting your branch chain amino acids in. They become energy stores. You can reuse them, but also they're going to prevent you from sarcopenic obesity in the future, which is great for body composition and preventing all the big scary things that none of us want to get as we age. Um, and then in addition to that, getting healthy fats in. So especially like if you're struggling with acne, um, looking at the less inflammatory fats. So we're looking at like things like avocado, macadamia nut oil, um, even avocado oil is great. If you do okay with, um, some people don't do well with dairy with acne, but they do fine with butter, but getting like a grass fed butter, but having those healthy fats come in, those will help uh, with satiation. So you're going to feel full longer. But what I'm talking about all here is going to be ways to build nutrient density. So if we're talking about like birth control, the pill specifically, and we see depletions in, so like zinc, for example, eating oysters, guys, oyster shooters, they're not just for funsies. They're not just for aphrodisiac ha-has. Um, you know, people always say, oh, it's an aphrodisiac. Well, kind of, because it helps with that zinc and that testosterone. Um, but, you know, pumpkin seeds can be another great source. Of course, you know, eating, um, if you can get organic grass-fed meats, those are definitely going to be like better choices, but not everybody has access to that. But animal proteins are going to have zinc. You're going to find magnesium in your leafy green vegetables. That's also going to be uh, something that we see depleted with birth control. When I talk about those healthy fats, that's where we're finding like our vitamin A coming in. Um, vitamin C is going to be in your vegetables as well. So these are all things that can be depleted by uh, birth control and that you can be focusing on uh, nutritionally. And so this is a lot what I talk about at drbrighton.com. What I educate a lot about um, online is that like, here are ways to eat like so that you can get ahead of these nutrient um, depletions and be eating a nutrient dense diet. And it's amazing to me how often I will hear from people that are like, 
wow, I like never thought about eating pumpkin seeds or I never thought about like, uh, you know, eating, you know, something like uh, sardines as a, you know, as a way to increase my um, nutrients. Um, it's, I think really um, in the US education system, because I don't know other countries, nutrition should really be foundational. I mean, the fact that, because I'll hear people say like, oh, the nutrient depletions of birth control are not that big of a deal. Like if you're eating a standard diet, you're totally fine. I'm like, but if you, if let's read some studies on the standard American diet, it is not fine. There's not, uh, you know, there's not a lot of nutrients coming in that way. And then it's, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, people will figure it out. No, people won't figure it out how to eat. Um, we never provided that framework and that education. And I think it's a really unfair thing in medicine for us to just then be like, oh yeah, well like just eat a healthy diet, right? We were talking about this before and it's like, well, what does that mean? Cause it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Like sometimes people think eating a healthy diet is, um, you know, juicing vegetables or in fruit like every morning and having only that for breakfast. And they don't know why they crash at like 10, 10 AM. And it's like, well, like you're, you're not like, you're probably not the right archetype for starting that way. You're crashing your blood sugar. We need to get these other things in. It's so much more nuanced than that. Um, yeah. So it's, I really think like, especially when we think about who we're prescribing birth control to, because <laughs> like my 17 year old self had an amazing diet. Let me tell you about the drive-thrus that I went through and <laughs> the crumb donuts that I thought made a lunch. That was lunch. Like when we're talking about the population we start prescribing this to, they don't have like the best dietary choices um, as it is. And so this just lends itself for an opportunity for education. Um, and I hope anyone listening to this really takes away that there is no one size fits all diet. And what I always encourage my patients and really anybody that ever is listening to me to do is just ask what's true for you. Just ask the question, like, is it true for me? Like you're going to hear really true information all over the internet, but it doesn't mean it's true for you. It could be a great generalization that comes out of a cherry pick population of a study. And that is true. But for you, it didn't work out that way. And that doesn't mean that your experience is false. It's just, you had a different experience. Yeah. And I, I really like that both topics that we've already covered. So side effects of birth control, very individualized diet, very individualized and we tried to put everyone in camps, like you're saying keto, paleo, or completely against birth control, OCPs, or completely for OCPs. But there's so much to consider and everyone responds differently. So it's really important to like listen to your body and see what works for you. One question I did have on the side effects is we get, we get this question a lot from our uh, followers on TikTok, but does, uh, do OCPs cause weight gain? Oh, that's like always, that's like the golden question, right? So right now in the research, we don't have anything that says like definitively yes, birth control causes weight gain. And what we often um, see is that, you know, it's just outright dismissed. I think this goes back to like the informed consent you were talking about, how, you know, two of the big ones that like perpetuate about birth control um, that are often just called myths and dismissed is uh, birth control will make you infertile. Now there was an IUD that did do that. We don't use it anymore, people. We don't use it anymore. Um, and yet, you know, we're just told like, oh no, it's not an issue. Don't worry about it. It's just never explained, right? It's that like 
doctor is God kind of position of like, because I said so. We all love that when our parents said that, right? Like, um, yeah, we really complied. That really changed everything, right? Um, it doesn't, <laughs> by the way. Maybe you were the kid that was like, yeah, I totally went along with it. And I was like, no, I'm gonna question that. <laughs> um, that's why I went into science because I'm like, I don't question everything you say. Um, so, but with that, you know, the weight gain is the same thing of like, women don't want to start birth control because they're afraid of weight gain. And then they're just told like, that's a myth. It doesn't happen. It's just dismissed. And these things are never explained. So that's why they continue to come up and why, why there's still that fear. There's also like, you don't build a lot of trust when you're just like, no, why are you even asking that? It's stupid. It's a myth. Like, so let's talk about the weight. So what we see in the research is that overall we don't see significant weight gain happening. However, when you look at some of these studies, there are individuals who did see significant weight gain and significant weight loss. And so some of these studies are just taking the average of what we saw and then reporting that. So they just add it all up, divide by the number of people, and that's what we saw. But there are outliers and we always expect there to be outliers. So it, it, when it comes to like, um, Everybody who's listening, there's a great uh, PhD researcher, Dr. Sarah Hill, and she came out with a book called This Is Your Brain on Birth Control. And I have the best conversations with her. I definitely recommend checking her out. Because um, something that I mean, her and I have talked about so many times is that you expect, she's like, we expect that in research, especially with pharmacology, there will be outliers. There will be people who do not make sense. And it's not clean to, to report. Statistically, it's not going to be clean, but we expect that. And she's like, but what I see is so often your colleagues get that pharmaceutical into practice and they expect that it's a one size fits all. Everybody should respond the same. And when you get these outliers, they're like, no, the outlier has to be wrong because I read this study. And so to realize that on average, we're not going to see weight gain. But if you're like, it's not this one person, like, you know, they have this friend or this sister and they gained weight, that may be possible. So there might be a mild increase in weight because of water retention. So that can certainly happen. These progestins, they don't help with water uh, re retention. They're not the same as progesterone. Progesterone is going to help you release some of that water. So that can be a bit of an issue. So if you get on the pill, you gain weight like immediately, and then you get off. And now you're like, oh, I lost the weight. That was probably water weight, especially if it's a couple of pounds. If you know someone who had significant weight gain, it could be related to birth control. It could be related to how it pushed the rest of their endocrine system. So like their thyroid, their adrenal, like other things going on. It may be what is true for them and what happened to them, but we don't on average see the majority of women experiencing this. The other issue that sometimes is pointed out is that women will start the pill and then 10 years later they say, well, I've gained like 10 or 20 pounds. It must be birth control. Well, on average, we're all gaining some weight every year. It's actually protective as we age to go into like our elderly years a little more heavy. Um, not like, so like I was a kid of the nineties. That's when like the waif movement was in like cool if that's your body, but like striving for that as being an elderly person, not totally realistic. Um, and so as we age, our metabolism can slow. We are seeing, you know, especially if you're not weight training, you're not keeping up with it, your mitochondria can shift. Um, and, you know, so that can be something that also explains why women are reporting the weight gain. But I do think it's really important to drive home that if it happened to you and you did experience weight gain, you may be an outlier. And that may be totally like your truth and that happened to you. 
On average though, it's not something that we have to be like super afraid of. So if we're counseling about that exercise, that diet, um, you know, that whole dietary stuff I just talked you through, that's also anti-inflammatory in nature. So, um, you know, inflammation can contribute to weight gain um, as well in some people. So if we are doing those things and we're counseling that, then we shouldn't see significant or tremendous um, weight issues. Now, one other thing I want to throw out, which is like a wrench and all that, is that you may be taking birth control because you had acne, uh, hair growth on your chin, chest, abdomen, hair loss on your head. Um, and that's because it's really great at suppressing testosterone. If it suppresses testosterone, there have been some studies in female athletes showing that there's difficulty like with their performance. And so testosterone is important for our muscle mass. So maybe that, you know, you in particular are having issues with your muscle mass and that is very energetically active. We've got a lot of mitochondria in there as well. And so that could be affecting your metabolism as well. And why we may not see weight gain on the scale, but we might see body composition shifts. And so that's something too, that sometimes women will say like, um, you know, my, I feel like my body composition has shifted and they don't necessarily use that where they're just like, I feel a little more squishy despite doing these things and I can't lift as much and what's going on. And so we'll never see that number on the scale change. We won't see that like, oh yeah, like you've definitely gone up by a significant amount, but you may have had shifts in your body composition. This doesn't happen for everyone. Um, and so just to understand that too, um, cause I don't want anyone to walk away and be like, Oh my God, bad things are going to happen. Um, listen, anytime there's any medical intervention, bad things can happen. They can happen. And that's why we give an informed consent. We review all of that with you so that you can be informed and give consent about what you're going to be engaged in. And then we monitor you and we watch you and we try to course correct if things get off when it comes to the weight issue a lot of doctors don't worry about that because that's a very benign thing to have happen. If you're living in that body, it might not feel so benign. So I do, I do want to say that like, it may not feel so benign. Um, but in terms of like, as we talked about like some of the bigger, scarier side effects, you know, those are definitely a greater concern. So some of the symptoms that women experience on OCPs, do most of these disappear once you get off the pill? You know, some of them can and some of them won't. So like we see with the mood symptoms, sometimes women will come off. They're like, okay, I was super depressed. I was feeling awful. I came off as like a cloud lifted. Um, you know, some I've, so people will say, oh, it's like a cloud lifted. I've had uh, women say like, it's like I stepped out of a fog. Like I feel like a completely different person. That's amazing when that happens. Some women develop like anxiety while they're on it and they come off of it and they're like, I I still have really hard days. So it really depends. The loss of libido, that's another one um, that we haven't even talked about. But if something's squashing your testosterone, then it can definitely rob you of your libido. And um, it's one of those ones that I feel like um, it's just really dismissed in medicine. Like a woman's libido is like, like who really cares, right? Um, I don't know what your guys' experience is in terms of what you've been learning, but like I see that a lot where it's like, it's just dismissed. Like, it's as if like the, it's like the female orgasm is this elusive unicorn and the libido is like nice if you have it, but you're a woman, so don't expect it. Um, and yet it is a metric for health. Like I'm not talking about people who are asexual. That's a completely different conversation. But if you had a libido, you lost your libido, um, 
and you can't get it back, like that's a metric for health. Could it be mental, emotional? Absolutely. Could it be hormonal? Yes. Could it be related to, you know, inflammation or an infection or something else? Yes. So we need to dig and we need to find out why. With birth control, it reduces your testosterone production and it increases sex hormone binding globulin. That's why it works great if you have excess testosterone. But when you come off, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to come right back. Um, I've seen, it's in the research, and I've also seen it in my patients, where sex hormone binding globulin stays chronically elevated. Mm -hmm. And so you have high levels of that binding protein grabbing onto your testosterone. Now, your liver made it to begin with to keep you safe because all of that hormone that you had to take to stop your brain and ovaries from talking, that's too much. Your liver's like, we got to put a protein out there and grab onto some of that. We don't need overstimulation of our tissues. Um, and so with that, it's not that your body's broken. It's that it had a physiological adaptation and it needs some support like coming, coming out of that. Um, and so the libido doesn't always necessarily come back. It absolutely can. Um, but it is something that I think, you know, we just, it's another one of those things we don't talk about in terms of the, you know, the nutrient issues, usually, you know, if you're eating a great diet, you're taking a multivitamin or prenatal, not going to be an issue. That's going to resolve after you come off of it. Um, if you develop acne while you're on birth control, because that does happen too, um, that might take some time when you come off of birth control to actually resolve that. Um, there are just some things, I think acne is like one of the most stubborn ones of of things that, you know, are the bane of our existence <laughs> that can take time to clear. Cause you like, it's when you're walking around with something on your face, it's just, yeah, you can't, you can't think about anything else sometimes. Yeah. And I like that we um, have laid out what nutrients are important for supporting the body. If you uh, continue to be on OCPs and want to be on OCPs. And we also um, touched on the importance of sleep. Uh, is there anything else that you recommend to people who want to continue to be on OCPs that can help mitigate some of the side effects or the feeling of fogginess or anything? Yeah, well, you know, we talked about, you know, diet a lot. And one of the things that you can also bring in are, are like these great root herbs like ginger, turmeric to help with inflammation. This isn't something like ibuprofen. So just for people to understand, like we're not going to just like bring in a pharmaceutical, we're going to squash inflammation. Um, but these are, you know, great things to bring in that can help. So, you know, as I said, there was a study with potential hypothesis of why we get um, depressed moods while on birth control. And what they were talking about is that while you're on hormonal birth control, you have inflammation uh, that's taking place in the brain and that disrupts the tryptophan pathway. And so instead of going tryptophan, serotonin, melatonin, we are actually going down into a quinolinic acid pathway. And so we're making neurotoxins within the brain. Um, so obvious thing would be like, you know, the root cause of that is like, we need to remove birth control, <laughs> but you might be like, I can't get pregnant. And this is the only thing that I can use right now. And this is like the best method. And so that's where like bringing in anti-inflammatories can be really beneficial. What I like about, so like, you know, we can bring in things like omega-3 fatty acids as well. So you can eat cold water fish. It's also going to have your selenium in there as well, which is getting, um, that can be depleted with birth control. But you know, with ginger and turmeric, these are also whole roots that you can eat. I'm actually drinking turmeric tea right now, <laughs> but you can eat them as whole roots and that will also feed your microbiome and support your microbiome's health as well. We know, um, we've got like, let me just say like, this is like, um, the evolution of medicine is just hilarious to me. And that like, so when 
I was getting my nutrition degree. We were taught, and this is how old I am, everybody. Um, actually, it wasn't that long ago, but like still, we were taught the microbiome was a bunch of freeloaders, and they make a little bit of B12 and a little bit of vitamin K, but other than that, they're just like eating all your food. They're a bunch of bacteria. We don't know why they're there. They're just like taking up space. And then it was like maybe probiotics will be helpful. Now that was really fringe. You'd go to a health food store and they would talk to you about eating probiotics and like how you should eat sauerkraut and like yogurt. And, um, I, you know, and in, I don't think they really knew then they were talking about prebiotics as well. That's what we're talking about when I'm saying eat these roots, feed those critters. Um, and you saw doctors being like, that's crazy that's crazy. You don't need to be like eating like sauerkraut. You don't need to be getting probiotics. Probiotics are all dead um, when you get them in the bottle anyway. So, cause then became the supplements and they're all dead anyway. So like, why are you even taking them? Um, and then the next thing, the next evolution was like this research started to come out. And then we saw doctors being like, yeah, we've um, been prescribing probiotics. Like, yeah, that's been our thing. That's totally our jam. And like, yeah, we, we actually recommend that you like eat these foods. And, and I'm like, wait, hold up. You were guys the what? you were calling me crazy. Like just like five years ago. And now suddenly like you, you're the, you're the experts in all of this. Oh, and as it turns out, those dead probiotics participate in positive cellular signaling once they enter into your digestive tract. So they didn't actually have to be alive, like when you were taking them, but you guys knew that all along, right? Like it's a really funny thing. I mean, we talked about that before, like the ego of doctors and just how they go from like, dismissing, hating, even calling names, right? Like about like, oh my God, I can't believe you would do that. You're crazy, like whatever. And then suddenly like a study comes out and they're like, no, no, like that's our thing. Like, no, we've been recommending that. We're the experts in that now. And it's like, can you say sorry for being a bully? Like just for a second there, like, <laughs> but it just cracks me up. <laughs> I really, I'm like, I mean, there's nothing I can do about it, but laugh, right? Um, but that's what I'm talking about here in terms of like those eating those, um, those great root vegetables. So there's the anti-inflammatory ones. Um, But the other thing, I do want to back up and say the answer, I say this in my book to your like uh, depression, people will be like, oh, you have um, depression. You must have low serotonin, take tryptophan. No, because the tryptophan pathway is not operating correctly. And if you were going to take anything, you're going to take it under doctor's supervision, I hope it would be 5-HTP and then bringing in some magnesium as well and B vitamins to help with that conversion that needs to take place in the brain. Um, but I don't, I know that people really struggle, especially in the US to get access to healthcare and to get like heard and everything. But I just don't think with mood, while neurotransmitters, you know, are synthesized from these things and we can support them, that we should just be messing around with that. Um, you know, these amino acid therapies, I know people have used them, reported great things with them. I just want to caution people because uh, with birth control, you know, there can be an increased risk of like suicidal ideation and these other things. So that's why we want to make sure that we have a healthcare provider on board. Um, and why I talked about the gut as well is because with birth control, you know, we, we definitely need more repeat studies on this, but it is one of the drugs that's known to increase intestinal hyperpermeability, which gets commonly called leaky gut. And it also can hit that microbiome similar to an antibiotic. And the tricky thing is, is that an antibiotic is like a seven, 10, 14 day course, but birth control is like a 10 year, 20 year course. So we really have to be examining its effect on the microbiome. Um, it's supposed to be in, uh, the pill, and this is the pill specifically, I, I should say, 
we do need to ask questions about like, what's up with that progestin and the metabolites from the IUD and how do those interface? Cause we know the critters that grow in your gut, they get shared with the vagina. So like what's happening with this interface? No idea right now. We have no idea. Um, but to understand what the pill specifically, it's supposed to be absorbed in the small intestine, but some of it makes its way to the large intestine. Um, and when it makes its way there, uh, that's when it can really affect the microbiome. And we know from the research that your microbiome and your gut health can affect your mood. Definitely brain fog, definitely energy. I mean, it has such a profound effect. I mean, we've, we're teetering on what I think we're going to end up calling the gut is the first brain, which makes sense because biologically speaking, most organisms form the tube and have the tube before they have a complex nervous system. That's what we've seen um, in evolution. Uh, so just to understand that like your diet can have profound effects, the birth control pill that you may be on may be affecting your gut in ways that your doctor never explained to you. I mean, there was a study showing that there's, I mean, we we actually had case reports in the 70s and 80s of increased incidence of Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, increased number of Crohn's surgeries um, with being on the pill. And then, you know, more recently had a study coming out showing a 300% increased risk of developing Crohn's disease within five years of being on the pill if you have the genes. That is, if you have a family history of it is what they said, which is, you know, had the genes for it. So to understand there is an inflammatory effect that can be happening in the gut. And it's all about what's your predisposition. Mm -hmm. So taking all of these side effects into account and as someone who is like in the searching for a contraceptive, um, what do you usually recommend? Sorry, I had to take a drink of water there. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of what I recommend, it's really about displaying what is there for my patient and, and walking them through that. Uh, and so why I say that is because it's very individualized and it's about what are you going to actually stick with? What fits with your lifestyle? What is your family history, your personal medical history that we need to take into account? What are your current lab markers that we need to understand um, <clears throat> to make this decision? So, you know, for someone in the pill works amazing for other women in IUD. I mean, there's women who are like, I can't, I can't do a combination pill. I can't do a progestin only pill. Marina IUD was amazing. So it really just depends. The IUDs, we've got the hormonal, um, which is like, like Marina, Skyla, Kylina, um, they have the cutest names. And then we've got the copper IUD, like the Paragard, um, which has no hormones. Those beat out uh, in terms of like pregnancy prevention, those beat out like all the rest, but they don't always work for everyone. Like if you've got um, really heavy, painful periods or you have endometriosis, that copper IUD is not going to be the best thing for you um, because it can increase bleeding and it can increase cramping. And so we have to take that into account. Um, if you're not in a monogamous relationship, you need to be using condoms. Um, and this is something that often gets left out of the prescription conversation is like, here's the pill. You won't get pregnant. And it's like, and here is a bowl full of condoms. Take a handful because you can still get HPV. You can get chlamydia. You can get HIV. Like there's other things. So, um, yes, condoms have a high failure rate when used, uh, you know, with the typical use, but I think when both partners actually understand how to use them, it's less of an issue. Um, because, and I think especially, um, 
yeah, important to understand that it's not just one person's job when it comes to contraceptive. Um, that you you know that it's got to be a team. It's a team event that's taking place. It needs to be team effort in terms of contraceptives as well. And then we've got. Uh, you know, the cervical cap, the diaphragm's a little harder to come by. Those, it, those have a higher failure rate when it comes to pregnancy prevention. So there's some women who opt to use those um, or like a condom when it comes to fertility awareness method. Um, but you gotta, like the thing I'll say is that you've got to weigh the side effects you're willing to uh, take on and the risks you're willing to take on. And with fertility awareness method, if you do that perfectly, it rivals the pill in terms of pregnancy prevention. However, we always hear that story of the person who was like doing fertility awareness method and got pregnant. It is often that they were doing rhythm method or calendar method, which is not the same thing. Or they were like, yeah, I knew I was in my fertile window, but you know, we just did it anyways. And you're like, yeah, well, that wasn't perfect use. That's not how it's designed to be used. So um, with that method, it can be trickier though, if one, you are, um, you know, having irregular cycles, you're not sure, or if you're someone who's just like, I'm not going to wake up in the morning and take my temperature every single day, like that could be definitely trickier. And so, you know, those are the methods we have available. There are technologies coming up that is actually um, going to be gels that thicken the cervical mucus and basically make it so that um, uh, I think about, is it Gandalf who's like, you shall not pass <laughs> to this sperm. Um, I really am dating myself uh, now. I have to say, like, I didn't, I didn't think Lord of the Rings was that long ago until like um, we recently got an HDTV, and I, I, I saw it on there, and I was like, oh, this is so old. <laughs> this is so, like that's that's the way that you know. But um, it'll basically form a barrier, which is um, when you are ovulating, you get that egg white consistency discharge totally normal to see that goop in your panties. However, it's also making a super highway for sperm to get to the egg. And so if you can thicken that up, if you can make it so the sperm can't reach egg, then, you, then you'll be more successful. But what's really sad as I talk about all of this is that little iteration that we've had on contraceptive technology. Um, it's like they came out with a pill and they were like, done, there you go. You're welcome. Uh, and then they were like, well, let's try some IUDs in there. But that took a long time. That came a long time later. Um, and yet we just really haven't seen advancements in that form of reproductive technology. Mm -hmm. Are there any side effects um, that have been found with IUDs? I know that most of the research has been done on OCPs, but um, I know a lot of my friends and myself, I was on a Mirena. Uh, mm -hmm. Are there any side effects linked to it or long-term fertility studies? Yeah, there's not long-term fertility studies uh, with the marina. You know, the big ones people are always scared of is like perforation um, or expulsion. So perforation, it breaks through the uterine lining or through the uterus. And then expulsion, it's pushed out. Really low risk, however, it is a really low risk. I did make a TikTok video on that. And then sure enough, the comments were full of people being like, happened to me, happened to me. I was like, that is always how it goes. And like, but I'm here for it. Like share your story. Like, I think we learn a lot from listening to each other's stories and it makes other people feel not so alone um, because, you know, I've never seen it um, happen in my patient population. And I think that, you know, if your doctor hasn't seen it, then you're going to feel like you're totally alone and all of that. Um, but in terms of the progestin only IUDs, you know, when they came out, um, the story went that like they stayed in the uterus, they were like, 
just isolated um, and they were localized hormones, which I always left out, like even at the time, I was like, that still doesn't make any sense. Um, and I make this joke, I have to say, I make this joke and then I actually got the opportunity um, to speak on a stage in Vegas and it was like my shining moment mm -hmm. um, because they just make a joke that like the uterus is not a vacuum container. What happens, in, it's not Vegas. It, what happens in your uterus doesn't stay in your uterus. Like that's not like this golden rule of the uterus. Um, and so now we do know that they actually are circulating um, and there seems to be effects that can happen on our mood as well, which I think is a really important thing because there are women who they get put on, they get the IUD and then they're suddenly anxious. They have trouble sleeping. They start having these issues and it's not really connected because their doctor's like, no, no, it's, it's localized. Um, we'll also hear women talk about like the Marina crash, like they have the Marina removed and then they just totally crash and they feel awful and they have all these hormonal issues. We don't have, there's definitely no study that says Marina crash. Um, and there's no, there's no studies that we've seen that's like, you know, actually documenting that. The, really, the um, interest of the research is on the product that can be marketed, and it is not on the, the user who's come off of it. So that is to say that, um, you know, with the research, one, yes, we have issues with funding in women's medicine. Two, a lot of researchers that I've talked with, they don't want to touch birth control because if they're showing something negative, they can be vilified. That can affect their future career. They also don't want to bring any kind of ammo to the anti-birth control people because those are out there being like, I want to take a birth, birth control away for any reason. Just give me a reason. And so there's that like political aspect of it um, as well. But what I think is really the most concerning of like what I hear from them is just how like, if they come out and they show a negative side effect because the pharmaceutical industry funds so much of the research, even when they're funding it, you know, behind like two layers back, like they're still funding so much of the research that this person may never get their grant approved again. They may not get funding again because they actually showed something negative and that there's nobody really interested in studying what happens when you come off. Like that's not really, they're like, we just want to know like, are you can we get you on it and like how are you doing on it but like when you come off there and this is again where that gap is where women are just falling into this abyss where it's like we don't have the information we don't totally understand what we have are a lot of clinicians observations and piecing together of the research of like this this may be what's going on so that's just to say you know well, I'm saying to you, there's no research to, on Miranda crash. There's no research on like post-birth control syndrome using that term specifically. It doesn't mean that what you're experiencing isn't real and that you don't need to advocate for yourself or the provider to get the help you need. Mm -hmm. So lastly, we ask every guest on the podcast to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Individualized medicine. That's what I think the future is, is listening to the patient, partnering with them, and actually providing that informed consent so that they can make the best decision for themselves. And then we track that data. Um, yeah, I think that goes along with individualized medicine. We need a lot more data collection and tracking on individuals and empowering them to track their own data because some of the most crucial data that we can get to solving their case is really the data they have just walking around in their own body every single day. So that's what I think the future is. That's a great answer. Yeah, I guess we're not getting enough data when we see patients for 
10 minutes on their annual visit. That's not enough data. Yeah. And not, you know, asking all the questions. Um, it's something that like I, you know, put out, uh, on social media, like this is what you should be tracking. Like when was your last menstrual period? How long was your last menstrual period? What was it like for you? Did you have any symptoms leading up to it? Was it like really heavy? Did it like interfere with your activities of daily living? And how many women wrote us and said, wow, my doctors never asked me any of these things except for when was your last menstrual period? And I'm like, wow, but like, there's so much information in, in just like the week leading up to your period and the period itself, or just the period itself has so much information about what your experience is like, what your quality of life is like, and like what issues you may be having. Um, and that's just a period. That's not to mention like everything else, like what's on the end of your fork on average and how many hours are you sleeping? And do you wake feeling rested? And like all of these questions. I mean, that's where I really love what I do is because I get a lot more time with um, people and I can, you know, really dig into that case, get them the referrals that they need, get the lab testing that they need and um, spend time really understanding them as a person. And that's something that um, for everyone who's bitter at their doctor who can't do that, please understand there's a whole system in place that makes it impossible. And nobody ever goes to medical school not wanting to help people. They really, really want to help you. It's actually why we see the pill prescribed so much is because if you've got a pill that can make your acne go away or make your period go away and like you don't have to have that pain, like why wouldn't you give it to a patient? Um, but we just have to understand that there's a whole system that your doctor is at the mercy of um, that they, you know, I've, I've you know, worked in conventional clinics where I'm seeing 35 plus patients a day. And I'm like, it's very, very hard, very, very hard uh, to do what I do in that period of time. And I can see the, um, the slippery slope and the temptation to just one size fits all, just hand everybody, you know, the same thing over and over. It certainly makes charting easier. Um, that's for sure. Yeah. No, I, I really appreciate that because I think that there is a little bit of a, a loss in um, trust and enthusiasm in the healthcare system. And I mean, this whole conversation that we had, um, we've talked a lot about nuance and how it's individual, like you were saying, individualized medicine. So everyone is really unique and you have to spend more than 10 minutes with each patient, but it's not saying that your doctor doesn't want to spend more time with you. Yeah. They, they honestly cannot. Um, so this making this information free for everyone and um, reading things like your book, which I love, by the way, highly recommend. Yes. Um, I, I think it's it's really important so people can start feeling empowered in in taking their health into their own hands. Yeah, and to remind them that the majority of healing that happens, especially with chronic illness, um, is happening outside the doctor's office. And I think that is something that's just been so lost over these years is that people thinking I'm sick, I have to go to the doctor and like my doctor has to fix me in that moment and not realizing that there is this personal responsibility, but also there's this power that you have in your choices that you make every single day to move yourself closer to health. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Brighton. Um, and lastly, of course, where can people find your work and follow you? Yeah, well, my main hub is drbrighton.com, D-R-B-R-I-G-H-T-E-N.com. You can also find me on Instagram at Dr. Jolene Brighton. I am on TikTok as well under the same handle. I have a YouTube channel. Um, 
yeah, and those are my main places. Oh, I'm also on Facebook as well, although <laughs> I kind of keep forgetting that one exists these days. <laughs> yeah, and then of course your book, um, Beyond the Pill, uh, is a wonderful resource for anyone and written very well. Well, thanks. Thank you so much. You're full of knowledge and we can talk to you for obviously hours and hours. <laughs> so thank you for being on the Future is Healthy podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.